Um, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you want to get your Bible out, um, turn there, scroll there, flip there, whatever means of the Bible you might have. And I want to spend our time together tonight um, taking an honest look at the relational culture of the church, and specifically our church. Um, we'll look at what Jesus says it should look like, um, and what it actually looks like sometimes, and why. Uh, and my hope is that we will uh, be able to identify a relational culture or atmosphere that God has called us to as his people. And we would uh, kind of see that vision, see that picture, and lock arms together and pursue that uh, no matter the cost. And so kind of what we're going to talk about tonight essentially is uh, the unity of the body through humility. Um, and so uh, we're going to look at uh, a passage in Philippians 2. Um, so as you turn there, um, I just want to tell you, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I don't know that I have like a favorite passage or a life verse or anything like that, but if there were one for me to put a finger on, um, this would probably be one of those, um, is Paul's letter to the Philippians, um, and specifically in chapter 2. Um, again, I have lots of favorite verses, but this one in particular has a special place in my heart and in my life. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One of those um, is because I think we see God reveal his heart uh, through Paul for how we would um, do life together as believers. Um, I'm a huge fan of this idea of doing life together. Um, and that means a lot of different things, but um, I, I believe wholeheartedly we're not called to be Lone Ranger Christians. Um, we're called to this one another life and uh, this letter, particularly to the Philippians, is talking a lot about that, about how to do life together as believers. And so I love it for that, um, because I don't know about you, but I messed that up so many times. I messed that up with my marriage. I messed that up with my kids. I messed that up with my coworkers, um, with the people around me. Um, we just mess up how to do life together because selfishness and things like that take over and distract us from the mission. But um, that's, that's one of the reasons I love this passage so much. Um, and the secondly... Uh, one of the reasons I love this passage is it's, it's the really one of the main verses that God used to truly uh, flip my life upside down personally as a new believer. Um, so like many of you, I grew up in a culture um, that yells from the rooftop, take care of yourself. It's all about you um, and what's good for you, um, what's, what's good and, and feels good at the time. And so that's what our culture screams at us even more so today. Um, and so that's what I did growing up. I spent most of the first 21 years of my life taking care of Dan. Um, I was always a pretty nice guy, but at the end of the day, um, I was a nice guy because I wanted people to like me. Um, the, relationship, the relationships I had um, were about me. The athletics I played in high school and college were about me. Um, the jobs I worked were for me and about me. Um, pretty much every decision I made um, big and small, could honestly be boiled down to something to do with me, benefiting me. Um, and so when God kind of plucked me out of that self-indulgent spiral of a life at the age of 21, it shook me up. Um, but it wasn't until I went off to seminary that God really started sanctifying this area of my life, and specifically through this passage in Philippians 2. I truly uh, started to wrestle with this text in a really 
practical way. And as I did that, um, for the very first time, I came face to face with this reality that my life really isn't all about me. Uh, In fact, what God showed me over the next several weeks and months and years of my life um, was actually that my, my life really had very little to do with me at all. According to this text that we're going to look at here in just a minute, uh, the majority of the and, and the majority of the New Testament, uh, my life and your life has much more to do with God and with others than it has to do with me or or you specifically. So, let's take a look at our passage together. It's a long passage. I'm going to read to us tonight. Um, read along with me. It starts in uh, Philippians chapter two, starting in verse one. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. I think. Um, so we're going to look at that. I'll be reading from the ESV. So we're going to read all 16 verses. I can't make any promises that we're going to get to all of those. Probably not, but we'll see what happens tonight. And again, we got another week next week to dive in. So, Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not turn, not run in vain or labor in vain. And so, like I said, we're probably not going to get to all 16 verses, and we'll jump in, and it's kind of a twofold message tonight and next week. Um, but we're going to start at the beginning here, and I want to see, uh, I read all of that, though, because I want you to see the entire context of what's happening here. And so, between this week and next week, your homework is to go and read all of Philippians 2, Um, Yes, all of it. It'll be worth your time. I promise there's just a few more verses beyond what we just read, but you won't regret it. But for the sake of the time for tonight um, and next week, we're going to look at these first few verses. So let's go back to Philippians 2, 1. Um, And so we're looking at these first four verses here. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
so as you read this, there's no question, and you look back at, at the history of, church, of Paul and the church in Philippi, there's no question that Paul loved the Philippian church. He had great stories with the Philippian church, and we don't have time to get into all those tonight. Uh, but some remarkable stories that you see Paul interacting, really doing life with them, and they involve crazy things like earthquakes and um, getting thrown into jail. That uh, was his first church he ever planted in Europe. He loved the Philippians, and this church had grown and had really blossomed since he had left Philippi. And so he's writing them a letter of encouragement that we see here in Philippians. Um, and that's probably what the letter of, of the book of Philippians is. It's, a, it's a, an encouragement letter. Um, and he's saying some of the choicest things that we have in our Christian vocabulary. Um, he, he writes them and says things like this, I thank God when I remember you. I'm thankful you are a partner in the gospel. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Just these really compassionate, heartfelt things that Paul is conveying to the church there in Philippi. He loved the Philippians. And like any good pastor, he would exhort them to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. He also has concerns, and he voices his concerns as well. He doesn't have too many hang-ups with the Philippian church, but he does say, and we'll see really clearly in this passage, two things. First, he says, temptations toward rivalry and conceit are at every turn. In Philippian church, if you want to lose the unity in the mission, and if you want to the unity to unravel, you want the mission to be hindered, then be full of rivalry and be full of conceit. But he doesn't want those things for them, so he says to avoid those things. And he keeps, and uh, to keep and sustain the unity and the mission of the church, you have to avoid these things. And so he loves them enough to say them. Um, and so we see this really neat snapshot in this story to the Philippians about his love for them. He, he says, I love you, I, uh, and you encourage me, but rivalry and conceit will eat you alive. You know, remember Christ and, and press into him always is what he's saying to this church. Um, I love you. You're an encouragement to me. It's a blessing to look and see what God's doing in you, and I love you enough to say this hard thing. It's kind of like parenting. You know, um, when, when you see your kid doing something they don't need to be doing, um, you love them enough to say, don't do that thing. Even if they don't get it or want to hear it, we say it. My kids love to run around and play with a ball, and the ball runs out into the road. They really want to go get that ball, but I really don't want them to get hit by a car. And so I say, no, wait, stop, don't do that. And so they don't understand. Maybe they don't understand why they can't run in the road, but I understand what's best for them as their father. And, and Paul's kind of saying this to them as the, as the planter of this church, his love for them. Um, comes through clearly. And uh, as I read this passage, it really reminds me of how much I love this church. I mean, I, I really do love this church. I love the people here. I love the pastors and staff that I get to work with. I love our heart for missions. Um, I love our desire to make disciples. I, I love the ugly stuff too. It's all part of who we are as God's people at Hillcrest. I just, I just love this place. Um, and so thankful that God has placed me and my family here to be a part of what God's doing. And I've got great stories here, like Paul had with the church in Philippi. I mean, I haven't been thrown in jail yet. That's good news. I'm glad that's not part of the story here yet. Um, 
and we haven't experienced an earthquake together. I did sleep in a tent next to David Wiggins, and his snoring sounded like a freight train. That's pretty close to an earthquake. Um, but we've laughed about some of the funniest things I've ever experienced, and we've cried and mourned over some of the most devastating things I can ever imagine. Um, and you've seen me fail, and I've seen you fail. You've seen me succeed. I've seen you succeed. And we have loved and encouraged one another, and we have let down and disappointed one another. That's the story of human life, um, particularly in a church when you really do what Paul is encouraging the church to do here, to do life together. Um, by the grace of God, Paul has allowed us to do this together during this season. But like Paul, I hope to speak words both of encouragement and concern to you tonight. And so before we get into fully into the passage here, I want to ask you to join me in praying um, for our time together. So let's pray. Lord, work so deeply in my heart, in our heart, that we are freed from the bondage of self-centeredness and given the disposition to look not only to my own interest, but also to the interest of others. Do this through your word. Do this through your spirit and for your glory in spite of me and my sinful heart. Make much of yourself and little of me or anybody else here. And we pray that we, you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 1, Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, so he lists out these characteristics of Christ. And by God's grace, I think you would say this, that, that those characteristics are present here. By, by God's grace, these gifts are evident here among you guys, among us at Hillcrest. I could spend the rest of our time together giving you example after example of how people sitting in this very room and the rest of this church exude these characteristics on a consistent basis. Those of you who have been here for years on years on years, you could just give a litany of stories of how God's characteristics are at work here. The encouragement by Christ, comforted by His love, participation in the Holy Spirit, the affection and the sympathy of Christ. Do you see that here? Yeah, I, I see it. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to see. You guys encourage me daily. Uh, there's not a day that goes by doing the work that I do that I'm not encouraged by the work of Christ in one of you here at Hillcrest. The Lord is at work here, and it is a beautiful thing to see. And just as Paul encouraged the Philippians, I want to encourage you to continue to faithfully exercise the gifts you've been given for the sake of the gospel and for the unity of this body. But we can't accept Paul's words of encouragement without also welcoming his words of concern for the church he loves so dearly. Because Paul takes these things and he says, we can't stop here. These characteristics of Christ, these are good, and we should celebrate their presence in the life of our church and in our own personal lives. But also, we have to take them farther on. So that's what he says in verse 2. Let's look at that. Paul says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He says, it's not enough for, to, for you to be aware of Christ's presence in you. 
He says you have to go somewhere with it. And so we, as we recognize his presence in us, where do we go with it? What do we do with that? You have to take your unique gifts and you have to unite them together. That's the point of the body of Christ. Um, gifts are powerful, but not nearly as powerful as they can be if they're not united to the body of Christ. And that's what makes it beautiful to see them happen. There has to be a collaboration. And look how he spells this out um, in that verse, in, chapter, in verse 2. A collaboration of one mind, one love, one spirit, with the intention of one purpose, a unified church on mission to make Jesus glorious to one another and to make him beautiful to the people in our families, at our schools, in our offices, in our neighborhoods, around the city, and around the world. But then he says, be careful. There are some hurdles, some roadblocks that can, can and will completely derail the unity and mission of the church. Let's look at verses 3 and 4, Philippians 2. Paul says, do nothing out of selfishness or selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And some might say here that Paul is just uh, giving some helpful tips on how to, to live life together, um, how to successfully accomplish the task at hand. Uh, while these are really great principles, they are good advice to live by and a necessary part of living the Christian life together, I think Paul's intentions behind these words go far beyond helpful hints. I think that Paul's goal here is, is twofold. One, he's issuing a heartfelt warning to the church at Philippi, and I would say the church at Hillcrest, of the grave danger and devastating consequences of self-ambition and vain conceit. He's urging them to pursue humility at all costs, with all they've got, but not just any humility, Christ-like humility. And that Paul's, and that, that Paul's second, and I think ultimate goal here, is to point us all back to Christ um, and his ultimate act of humility and sacrificing himself on the cross for us. And so let's unpack Paul's first goal here for just a second, this, this heartfelt warning against selfish ambition and vain conceit. Um, he's warning the Philippians about those things um, because he loves them. He cares about them, and he doesn't want to see anything get in the way of the unity of the body there and ultimately the mission of the church to take the gospel around the world. Um, folks, I, I love you, and I don't want to see anything get in the way of the unity and the mission of our church. And so I'm going to step off into some muddy water for a second that we tend to avoid in the church. Um, and don't worry, they're recording this, so Pastor Jim's going to hear this. So don't worry, I'm not going to say anything that I'm afraid of him hearing. But there's a small chance that some of you might be offended by what I'm about to say. Um, but I think there's a greater chance that God might use what we're about to talk about to unify his body and give us an even greater focus on the mission he's given us. So know that now that most of us, including myself, are sufficiently uncomfortable, let's pursue humility together with Paul's help. I believe that if Paul were living among us today, and if we asked him to observe our church, 
Big C Church and Little C Church here at Hillcrest. Like really observe it. Like look at, listen in on all the conversations that happen when no one's around. And even more scary, listen in on the attitudes of our hearts during those conversations. And we ask him to um, identify the one thing that is our greatest hurdle in keeping us from making his joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. I think he would hand us back a report with one big, bold letter on it, or one big, bold uh, word and big, bold letters. I think that word would be gossip. Now, before you breathe a sigh of relief and say, I thought he was going to talk about something I do. I want you to like not go back to sleep here and not think, oh, I sure hope that so-and-so is listening to this. Um, I want to encourage all of us to be really completely honest with ourselves for the next few minutes. Not only do I think it matters significantly to your own personal life, but how we handle this as the body of Christ will significantly impact our church and ultimately the kingdom of God. I think it's only fair at this point to define gossip. And what do we do nowadays if we want to know what something means? We Google it. That's right. You Google it. For those who don't know what Googling it is, you look up your computer, pull up Google, and type in, what is this? And the magic people at Google, side story, this isn't part of the message, this is just fun. My daughter's in New York right now with my mom. She just turned 12 on Monday, and so my mom took her and our niece to New York for their birthday. I've never been to New York, so I'm a little mad that my daughter is doing something I've never done. But I'm really excited for her. Don't tell her I'm mad. And so cool thing about that is um, one of our friends from high school, one of Rachel and mom's friends from high school, lives in New York now and works at Google in New York. That's cool. And so um, there's this thing at Google that um, it's not, Google's not open to the public. You can't go and do like tours there. But if you're invited by an employee, you can come and do a Google tour, but you have to be invited. And so we had said something online about uh, my daughter going to do this trip with my mom, and our friend messaged us and said, hey, if your mom will bring her here, I'll give them a tour of Google. And I was like, you're staying home, I'm going with mom. That's so cool. Like, he, like there are not many people in the world that get to go tour Google, and they get this private. Anyway, I'm not bitter. Um, that's just cool. So they're going to see Google. Funny story about that. My mom and dad were talking about this as they were getting ready to go to the trip, and they were talking about, like, how neat it is they're going to get to go see Google and what it's going to be like. And, you know, because, you know, nobody really thinks about Google. You just type things in there, answers pop up, it's magic, it's the Internet. So my dad was like, what if it's like when you go in Google and you walk in, like, the main office and it's just cubicles, like wall-to-wall cubicles, just, there's just thousands of people, and then they all have encyclopedias out. <laughs> and they just have, like, a headset on, you know, and they're looking at the computer, and question pops, like, ding, okay, can they type the answer in real quick? I'm like, I don't think that's what Google's going to be like. But it would be funny, though. Wouldn't it be funny? I wish they would, like, set that up just as a joke. Like, when you come in, it's like, here's the tour of Google. You got a bunch of, like, encyclopedia nerds typing in answers. It would be funny. I don't think that's what's happening. So I go to Google. What is, what is gossip? You know, if I asked around here, what, what is gossip? There'd be several different answers, I'm sure. So I went and Googled it. Here's what I found. The top 10 results on Google for gossip are by and large positive. There are several links to the hottest Hollywood gossip, a few more for gossip around the world, 
Um, there is a definition for gossip. We'll get that in a minute. Even a tutorial on how to effectively gossip with your friends. I'm not kidding. Like a video YouTube, like click it, and it tells you how to like gossip with your buddies. I'm, I'm serious. You can Google it. And then the guys will like flip through and find the answer for you. Y'all are going to think about Google like that for the rest of your lives. You're going to think about Google, and you're going to think encyclopedia people. I love that. So listen to the definition, the one definition in the top ten results for Google on gossip. Casual or unconstrained conversation or reports about other people typically involving details that are not confirmed as being true. I'm going to read this one more time because it's a little bit like Chinese. Casual or unconstrained conversation or reports about other people typically involving details that are not confirmed as being true. Could there be a more passive almost nonchalant definition of gossip. I don't think there could be. It's almost like our son Tucker, he's eight. It's like they asked Tucker to define gossip. It's like how I envision how he would try to explain away something that he did wrong, but he knows it was wrong. And so he's like, hey, Dad, so um, there's this thing. Um, what had happened was I was having this um, casual conversation about someone involving some details that haven't really been confirmed and then being um they weren't really um true so and, and i love you like that that's what that definition is like it's like what is gossip again i'm not sure like i don't even know what that is but i think it's a great indicator as to why we treat gossip the way that we do it's seen and even defined as almost a good thing even helpful at times apparently here's where the rub comes for us as believers though the way that our culture still toes shoes and some of us view gossip is nowhere near the way God views gossip. So don't take my word for it, but let's look at God's word. We're going to jump through a bunch of passages. I'm not even going to put them on the screen. We're just going to go through them really quick. But listen, because this is interesting. Leviticus 19.16, you shall not go around as a slanderer, gossiper, among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Proverbs eleven thirteen. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps the thing covered. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight. A perverse person stirs up conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. Proverbs seventeen four. A wicked person listens to deceitful lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Proverbs twenty nineteen. Whoever goes around slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple blabber, babbler, excuse me, same thing. Proverbs 26, 20 through 22, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Psalms 41, 7, all who hate me whisper together about me. That's happened to everybody in this room. They imagine the worst for me. Romans 1, 28, 32. Listen closely here. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithful, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
though they know God's righteous decree, church people, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 2 Corinthians 12, 24, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may, be, may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Church, if I'm being honest, when it comes to gossip, our lives seem to be more accurately defined by Google's view on gossip than God's view. That was a long list of scriptures that addressed gossip, and that is not even all of them. I didn't hear one with even a hint of positive connotation in it. In fact, most of them were either describing the tragic and destructive consequences of gossip or writing them in a list that included things such as murder, evil, malice, heartless, haters of God, and so on. Gossip is in the same sentence as haters of God. In a real practical sense, gossip is something that can get out of control quickly. And I recently heard a story about a man who went to a priest and confessed that uh, the Lord had recently convicted him of gossip. Um, And he wanted to know what he could do to make it right. Um, And so the priest told him to go up on top of a mountain, rip open a feather pillow, and turn the feather pillow loose into the wind. Just rip it open and turn the feathers loose into the wind, and then come back the next day. So the man did this. Went up on the mountain, tore it open, let the feathers go on the mountaintop, and the feathers scattered into the wind. The next day he went back to the priest and asked what he was to do next. And the priest told him to go back up to the mountain, collect all the feathers, and then come back and see what had happened. And the man complained that it would be impossible to collect all those feathers. And the priest said, that, my friend, was the point exactly. Once you begin to gossip, the words spread and scatter in the wind, and they can never be retrieved. You don't know where they go, where they're going to land, or whom they will hurt. Now, this is a very clear picture, um, as you imagine it in your mind, and I, I appreciate what the author's point is here in the old illustration, that gossip is a far-reaching and very difficult thing to reel back in. It's true, but I think it misrepresents the consequences of gossip just a little bit because um, the author is right. We don't know where the feathers are going to go or, or where the, they're going to land or um, you know, any kind of trouble it's going to cause. But to be honest, other than a little bit of a mess, a few feathers really aren't going to hurt anyone. Um, I think the illustration might be better suited if the priest told him to go up onto the mountaintop and instead of spreading feathers into the wind, gossip's more like going on to the mountaintop and spreading burning embers of fire into the wind. And so when the guy comes back the next day, instead of seeing a city covered in white, pretty little feathers, you see smoldering trees and buildings damaged or destroyed by embers of gossip that were then fanned into flames instead of snuffed out. You see, if we're committed enough, you could eventually pick up all the feathers and things would look as they did before. You can't undo burned down buildings and trees that are now piles of ashes. In the same way, you can't unsay words. And even more difficult, people can't unhear them. 
Let that sink in for a second. You can't unsay words and people can't unhear them. That should carry a weight for every word that we say and every person that we say it to. And even scarier, not only can they not unhear them, they can't undo the way it makes them feel about you or the person that you said them about. Gossip has consequences. Some that change the landscape of things forever. Some of you could probably remember a story where gossip ruined something in your life. I can. Unfortunately, I've been a part of gossip that's ruined things. And so seeing this biblically and having an appreciation for it in this way, what do we do? What do we do with gossip? What do we do in just a few minutes when we stand up and walk out these doors and go to our house? Tomorrow morning when we wake up and go to our work, what do we do with this reality, this biblical understanding of how God sees gossip, not how Google sees it, or maybe even how we see it? Um, So my simple prayer all week as I've been thinking about this would be that we would be a people that more closely holds to God's view of gossip than Google's view. And if someone walked into this building right now with a gun and started pulling the trigger, I know there's at least a few of you, I'm not going to point any people and don't stand up and raise your hand. There's a few of you that are packing heat in this room and you're going to stop that guy with the gun right here, right now. I believe that and trust that and don't hesitate for a minute. But I wonder what would happen, what it would be like if as the people of God, we were just as outraged, just as on guard over gossip as we are about murder. In God's eyes, they are the same. You remember the passage in Romans. They're in the same sentence, same paragraph. In God's eyes, they're the same thing. So shouldn't we, the people of God, see it through the same lens that God sees it? I honestly think that is why we have become oblivious to gossip in the church. But once we refocus our lens and see gossip through the gospel lens, it's then that we begin to apply the gospel to those situations. It's when we see God change this part of us to look more like him. And speaking of looking more like him in Luke 8, 9, 18, 9, Luke introduces the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector like this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves as they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so um, this is Jesus telling a parable to Pharisees. It may seem minor at first, but notice that it says that Jesus told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. It does not say he spoke this parable about them. Jesus was looking the Pharisees in the eye and telling them a parable that implied that they were self-righteous. He was not talking about them, but to them. Though it may seem like a minor thing, it contains a lesson that is huge for the health of our church and for the health of our relationships in our life. Let's be like this. Let's not talk to other people or about other people. Let's talk to them. There's nothing in the Bible that says don't, tell, don't, don't shy away from conversations, hard conversations, and telling people their faults. Just tell it to them. And uh, far, far too tasty on the tongue are our sin, of our sinful souls. It's easy to do this, to talk about people. But it's hard. And often 
can taste bitter at first to talk to them. And when you're talking about them, they can't correct you. They can't turn the tables and make it your problem. Uh, but if you talk to them about the problem, um, you, you worry that it might be very painful, and it might be for a season. So it feels safer just to talk about people rather than talking to them. But Jesus does not call us to make safe choices. He calls us to make loving choices. So in the short run, love is often more painful than self-protecting conflict avoidance. But in the long run, our conscience kind of condemns us from this easy path and we do little good for others. So let's be more like Jesus in this case. Not talk about people, but talk to them, both with words of encouragement because of the evidence of grace we see in their lives, but with words of caution or warning as well, correction or even rebuke if necessary. Paul urged us to use the full range of words for the full range of needs. Admonish the idle, encourage the faith, the faith, faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's in First Thessalonians chapter 5. We do all these things for each other. So do so do we walk out of here? I get to this point and I'm like, man, I'm going to go hang out in my room and not talk to anybody because I'm going to mess this up so bad. I've already messed it up so bad. So, so what do we do with this? Do we walk out of here with our faces in our hands, disappointed in ourselves, dejected over our sinful heart? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we remember Paul's main reason for writing this letter. His main reason for writing this letter is to point us back to Jesus. It's not Paul's goal, nor is it mine, that we leave here crushed over the weight of our sin or beating ourselves up over its consequences. After all, Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, encouraged our soul in moments of deep conviction like this. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8 says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. And so when we hear things like this, when Paul's talking about this and this word of warning, I, th- I hope we do feel hard-pressed. I hope we do feel kind of perplexed about this reality of this thing in our lives. But I love that Paul says we're not crushed. We don't despair. Um, I don't know about you, but I, even as I was preparing this this week, there were times that I felt perplexed and impressed by this yet we are not crushed not to despair why why doesn't the weight of my sin crush me why doesn't the confusion of this world send me spiraling out of control why doesn't it do the same to you because jesus died for that he bore my weight and your weight of sin on that cross that dreadful and glorious day He is in control when it seems to us that things are out of control. He humbled himself and came from heaven to earth in the form of a baby. He lived a sinless life that we could never live. He knew we weren't going to be able to live up to that standard. He died a brutal death that we could never bear. He defeated death on the third day so that we could have life with the Father for eternity. That is why we don't walk out here, walk out of here with our tear-filled faces in our hands when we consider these things. That's why we don't give up on this fight that we're in this, this very day. That is what Paul is trying to get us to see in this text in Philippians 2. Paul is saying to the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know Jesus, 
If you trust Jesus, follow him. Be humble as he is humble. Listen to Paul in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 as we continue on in that passage. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so... My longing for my life personally and for our church is that we would be free from gossip, considering others' interests better than ourselves. We must be forthright and honest and courageous and humble. Jesus was, ama- Jesus was amazingly blunt at times. Love sometimes sounds like that. He could have easily been accused of callousness or lovelessness, but we know he was the most loving person who ever lived. And so let's follow him in this way. He died for us so that all the logs and specks in our eyes may be forgiven. And that should give us both courage and care in dealing with others. Especially when we realize that the faults of our brothers and sisters have also been forgiven by Jesus. Because of Jesus' humility, we are given the ability to have unity with one another. And so this is just the, I know we've kind of zoomed in on one particular thing that can disrupt the unity of the body and disrupt the unity of our relationships, but I really do think um, this is a thing that can have devastating consequences, not only in our own personal lives, but in the lives of our church. And some of you may be able to tell stories along those lines. And so again, I don't want us to leave discouraged tonight. I want us to leave encouraged um, by the reality of Jesus' work in our life. Um, Yes, we should be pressed and perplexed, right? We should not ignore sin. But at the same time, we should not leave defeated um, because sin has been ultimately defeated on our behalf. So practically, let's speak for a second. Next week, we're going to talk a lot more practically um, in the sense of what do we do now, okay? So we've talked about biblically what gossip is, what the effects it can have, and really God's perspective on it. But then it begs the question, then what? So if I'm going to, it's kind of the same model that Paul talks about, a put off and a put on. And so what we're kind of establishing tonight together in agreement is that we need to put off gossip, slander, right? We need to put that thing off. So we're going to talk next week more specifically and kind of unpack what do we put on instead. And hint, humility, right? Humility. We put on what Philippians 2 is going to talk about. We're going to dig in more down the line of why we do that later on in the passage next week. But I don't want to... The reason I'm not going to land it with like a pretty pretty bow and make you feel okay about the gossip thing is because we shouldn't feel okay about it. I hope you go home tonight and talk about it. I hope you go home tonight and think about conversations that you've had that maybe we shouldn't have had. You know, I, I had a laundry list of conversations roll through my head this week as I went through this passage and prepared this message 
I thought, oh man, I gotta call this guy. I can't go. I can't go talk to these people about this on Wednesday night. I got. I gotta. I gotta call this guy and talk to him about this. And so that just speaking practically for one second as we wrap up, two things to do. Okay, aside from don't forget what we're talking about right now when you walk out the doors, um, do that. But two practical things. One, you have the power. You individually have the power by the power of the Holy Spirit in you to stop gossip in its tracks. And that doesn't mean like you not gossiping. But there's a funny thing about gossip that it takes two people. I've never seen anybody be able to gossip with themselves. Well, I take that back. I've seen it, but it was weird. Um, and so not only do we, do we put off gossip personally, but we help each other put gossip off. Like when it says, not only consider your own interest, but consider the interest of others, what better way can you help consider someone else's interest when you see them stepping off into sin? You, you grab them by the shirt collar and yank their tails back out of there. And so when you're in a group and gossip, the gossip thing starts rolling like it does, do something. Just like if a dude walked through that door and, door and started pulling the trigger, if, you, if you're one of the guys going to jump up with a gun and shut it down, do that in a gossip conversation. I dare you. Try it one time. See what happens. You know what it'll do? It'll stop gossip. Right? One way or the other. It'll stop gossip. And two, it'll strengthen the body because you encourage everybody else in that room that's thinking, oh, this shouldn't be happening, but I don't want to be the one that says something. Be, be the one that says something. What's, what's at stake? Think about what's at stake. Think about all those passages we just read in God's view of gossip. My prayer is that we leave tonight with a more accurate view of gossip based on what the Bible says and a, and a more proactive view on what to do about it. Again, I hope you don't leave discouraged because gossip can be a discouraging thing. I hope you leave kind of energized to go snuff it out and put it out. Um, and that happens one person at a time. I've seen this happen. I've been a part of a gossip culture, and one person decided to stand up and stop it. And then when that one person stood up to stop it, and then another person stood up and to stop it, and then another person, and then another person, and then one person who couldn't stop it, they didn't feel welcome there anymore. That might happen. So I want to encourage you to, to, to be proactive about this. And then come back next week. One, it won't be nearly as heavy. But two, it'll be an encouragement to you of how do we really do this thing when we get beyond kind of this huge roadblock that tends to drive a wedge of unity, a disunity in us in our relationships individually and corporately. How then do we pursue unity? And we'll, look, we'll dig back into Philippians 2 and look at that. Um, really practically speaking. So um, thank you all for y'all's time so much, man, and for um, listening to what God has been talking to me about this week. And um, I just want to close with a word of prayer and ask God to help us do this. Don't try to do this on your own. You need God's help. I'm speaking from experience. 